Okay, tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Uh, I'm tired of being so fucking angry all the time. My family doesn't understand how my faith or my religious views have changed. Uh, I know I believe in God, or but I just don't know how to connect with God outside of what I've always done. Maybe the sentiment is, uh, I don't believe in hell, but I'm also afraid of going there. You know, maybe you've said, I've deconstructed it all, I've pulled it all apart, and I don't feel any better. What do I do? Uh, hi, I'm Kevin Garcia, and I do this thing called spiritual recovery, which is basically the what the fuck do we do now that we've pulled apart our faith, now that we've pulled apart all of the questions and we're left with, I don't know what to do. So if you're someone out there who is feeling the brunt of spiritual burnout, you've been doing this for a while on your own and you're asking, what do I do now? I want to invite you to come hang out with me. The Spiritual Recovery Workshop is a small group program designed to help you craft daily spiritual practices to help you reconnect with that source of love that's always within you. It's going to help you heal your past spiritual wounds, and it's going to help you begin creating the life where you want so you can stop worrying about all the shit that went down when you were still in church. So it's, it's 90 days of working in an amazing learning cohort with other humans. 24 weekly group calls, there's one-to-one -one coaching, there is an e-course that's literally the best of any sort of learning style you've got, we can take care of it. So whether or not you're ADHD or you've got trauma in the body that's connected to spiritual practice, this is probably the thing you've been waiting for. Um, there's more information on my website at thekevingarcia.com slash workshop. Check it out. I know this isn't for everybody, but it might be for you. And if any of this sounds interesting, again, thekevingarcia.com slash workshop. I look forward to talking with you. Mwah. You are listening to an irreverent media podcast. Go to irreverent.fm in your web browser to find more dope-ass podcasts like this. Now on to the show. Hey friends and welcome back to another episode of A Tiny Revolution, a podcast about ordinary folks living revolutionary lives. I'm Kevin. I'm the curator of this here space and I'm so glad you're here. I am so thrilled for this conversation with my friend Marcy Alvis Walker. She's the creator of Black Coffee with White Friends, a very popular Instagram account. If you're not following her, what the hell are you doing? Go over there and do it right now. Her book is coming out this month, and if you haven't already pre-ordered it, please go do that right now. I'm gonna be featuring a lot of my author friends these days, y'all, but I wouldn't be you know, pushing their stuff if I didn't think it was good. And let me tell you what, Marcy's work is brilliant. Before I keep telling you about her, let me update you on some stuff uh, going on in my world. Next Saturday, March 18th at 11, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I get, or whatever time we're going into because they didn't pass the Sunshine Protection Act, even though it's completely antiquated and we don't need to change times anymore because blah, 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 blah. Anyways, um, 11, 11 a.m. on March 18th, I'm hosting an online pay what you want workshop called WTF now and it's a workshop completely dedicated to talking about well what do we do now now that we've pulled apart our faith now that everything's fallen apart like what can I do right now to start feeling better I'm gonna be talking about meditative practices I'm gonna be talking about the anatomy of our trauma and we're, we're gonna be working on some 
easy to do somatic exercises for you to start getting in touch with your true self and your body and starting to come alive again. So if that is interesting to you in any way whatsoever, please go to the link in my bio. Um, it's across all my social media and just click the little registration button. It's free and it'll be available for seven days after the, the initial taping on that Saturday. Um, so yeah, even if you can't make it on that Saturday, you'll still be able to watch it later. Please, please, please go sign up. It's going to be so much fun. I'll see you there. Um, I think that's it. Um, now let's talk about my guest today, my friend Marcy Albus Walker. She is the creator of the popular Instagram feed, Black Coffee with White Friends. She's also creator of Black Eyed Bible Stories. She's passionate about what it means to embrace intersectionality, diversity, and inclusion on the spiritual level too, and not just in the ways that we interact in the workplace and shit like that. Currently, she's living in Chicago with her husband, her college-aged kid, Max, and their dog, Evie, which I just think is the sweetest name for a dog ever. Um, I love y'all. Thank you so much once again for tuning in to another episode of A Tiny Revolution. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Marcy Alvis Walker about her new book, Everybody Come Alive, which is coming out uh, in a couple weeks from Penguin Random House. If you Again, if you haven't picked it up, please go get it. And so with that, friends, uh, get yourself something delicious to drink, cozy up to whatever you're doing, um, share this podcast with a friend. Um, yeah, please do that. And also, if you haven't subscribed, obviously, what the hell are you doing? Please do that. This is free. It's delicious. You get it in your ears every week. The least you could do is share it on social media, share it with a friend. You know what I'm saying? And especially after you listen to this conversation, you'll see why. All right. Get your tea, get your coffee, whatever, and enjoy this conversation with my friend, Marcy Alvis Walker. Tell me something in your life right now that's like really bringing you spot of joy that's really like making you i don't know come alive <laughs> well i'll tell you what when beyonce dropped renaissance that definitely <gasps> it's still on repeat it's still like I, and i love it because um it was the first album that my kid like made me wait to listen to because they didn't want me to listen to the whole album they wanted to experience mm. it with me Mm. And um, and then they totally just went and listened to it with their roommates and totally like forgot that they had um, sat here waiting to listen to it. This is a while back. Mm. So, um, but I guess what's making me come alive right now? Um, shoot, I I don't really know. Um, I was pretty upset about Beyonce not winning. Mm. Very happy for Lizzo and with right. Song of the Year. Um, pretty upset about the things that were being said about Rihanna. Very excited about Rihanna. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the thing that's most keeping, like, keeping me alive right now and helping me come alive right now, um, we have been all about the 1619 project watching that on hulu mm. but also i just started watching white lotus i didn't watch it <laughs> and that's what we did last night that was valentine's day me sick thinking i was gonna die and us we benched the whole first season Ooh. and we just kept going and um that just really excited me because um 
I had just seen uh, The Last of Us, and I don't know the the oh, main. Oh man, I I've just been watching saw that that episode with Nick Offerman and how. Oh my god! And Spoilers ahead if y'all if y'all haven't seen it. Skip ahead a little my bit. Eyes out. Bald. Bald. <laughs> I'm sitting I'm literally my, my my partner's in the kitchen, like doing his thing, like literally like doing dishes, being a selfless servant. And I'm sitting in the living room, just like like oh. knees up to my like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my And I didn't even want to watch the dang show because I was no. like, listen. I'm no press person in this country. I don't need to watch like zombies and yeah, I don't come like, in and chasing I need some... me. That's the last thing I need. But that episode just changed it for me. Same. It was I, the reason I was at a coffee shop, just like minding my business. You know, the barista's talking with another customer about some show, and I'm not listening. But then somebody walked up to them and said excuse me, are you guys talking about episode three of The Last of Us? And they said, yes. They went, oh my God. And yeah. they all like freaked out. I'm like, okay, I said, okay, so perfect strangers are having an experience about this. So yes. that to me was like, okay, I'm going to go watch it. And then I was like, I was like, it's a gay episode too. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And of course, because like, queer people were so hungry for representation sometimes, like, yeah, fine, I'll watch it. We'll yeah, take it. yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it's like, I, it's I get so, that. but then like they delivered. They fully they, delivered. They delivered in all the ways that we haven't always delivered queer stories. First of all, there was sex. Mm-hmm. There was the whole... I I was just... The whole idea of the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And you still not knowing if you could be your whole self. That moment, I don't want to get into it, but but that moment mm-hmm. where they're where they're where he asks, "Who was who was she?" Mm-hmm. and she said, and he says, "It wasn't she." And I just was like, "Oh my and, gosh!" And then but was it was like, like I know, scared kind of way, and I was just like, "Dang, at the end of the world." But I have been saying to my hubs, I have been saying, "Babe." You know, you know, the first people that they're going to be burning in piles on the street are black and queer people like, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it it was a moment for me. I just loved it so much. Mm-hmm. Love, 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 loved it. Yeah. So that kept me alive. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Nothing like a zombie show to keep you alive. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, speaking of living, your book, Everybody Come Alive. Coming out um, in May. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, first of all, I love the way you formatted this book where there's like all these delicious like little mini prose in in yeah. between in mm-hmm. between chapters where it's just like, this is like a piece that I just want to paste in here. And I was, as I was reading this, I was like, dang, I should have, I should have done that. That's cool. I'm going to do that <laughs> next time. Um, oh, and also, sorry, I just realized that apparently I cut my finger and I wonder how oh, long no. I've been bleeding. It's mm. okay. Um, give me one second. <laughs> Let me just yeah. go get a tissue real quick. Yeah, yeah, please do. That is strange. Care for yourself, please. Ugh. Oh. 
Okay. I see Never mind. Here. I, I saw your fur baby. Oh, little tippy tip. You wanna say hi? Hello. Hi, darling. Hello. Oh my god. That's so cute. the angel of angels right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. No, no um, worries. But your book, Everybody Come Alive. Mm -hmm. Um, it's what I like is like a memoir in essays. Um, which I think is really, really cool. Like, just like, I don't know, like, it's, um, it's a little less common, I think. There's so many, like, writings, like, memoir writing out there where I'm going to write a whole story and a whole through line. But yours, it's like, this chunk. I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about this. All with this thing, I'm just like, I am just out here trying to be who I am. Yeah. And I'm trying to let other people be who they are. And this yeah. is how I'm learning to do it within this body, within mm -hmm. this context as a black woman, as the mother of a queer child, as, yeah. uh, you know, somebody who isn't like, you know, uh, an academic, you know, in, no. in, in like the traditional mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I love this work. It's a beautiful oh, offering. And uh, so for you, if you wanted to sum it up, if you wanted to like tell somebody about what everybody come alive is about how would you tell them i would say it's a memoir and essays about how i literally came alive and hope that other people come alive and how i came alive to every aspect of my being mm. i came alive to my blackness i came alive to my womanhood i came alive to my holiness and those are the three sections of the book black woman holy and it's really hard to hold those three together um, because it's fine for you to be black. It's even fine for you to be a black woman. But not everybody will say that you are holy. <laughs> Just in your being, that your being is actually a reflection of God or the divine or whatever you call greater than yourself. Damn. Why is this, well, why, let me ask the question then, why? Why is it so hard to like keep all three together? Well, you know, I could just say flat out racism and sexism. Yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I think one of the things that I really tried to highlight, you were talking about the prose pieces in between. I wanted to show what the culture was for my come up, like me coming up, what the culture was who was speaking in culture, what was informing culture. I think it's hard because culturally, we have decided that there's only one story mm -hmm. that's worth being told. And it's usually from a very white male heterosis perspective. Um, or if it's not from that perspective, it won't piss off white male heterosis people. So that's the cultural normative from the church, from the Grammys, from you know, you name it. And so to be able to talk about culture, and that's why I bop around so much, and I couldn't just do one arc, also because my family's a whole thing. So they're mm -hmm. doing a one arc story. I was like, well, can't talk about that without talking about this. But um, I think the whole idea of, how we inform who we are. We were just talking about the re representation with The Last of Us and mm -hmm. even with White Lotus and 1619 Project. When you are coming up 
without a language for who you are, it's very hard for you to come alive to yourself. And that line comes from a Jimi Hendrix song. Um, Everybody come alive. Everybody love a lot. Um, And I love that lyric so much. The, The whole idea of if we all could just come alive, how much more love would there be in the world if that mm. were just permissible? And we know it's beneficial, but we haven't allowed it to be permissible. And mm. we've allowed that to be legislated. How much of a human you can be has been so legislated from the top down. And in this book, it, it's all throughout the culture. So I talk about Laura Ingalls Wilder. I talk about public enemy. I talk about um, Muhammad Ali and I talk about Luke and Laura from General Hospital. So you really know how old I am. Mm-hmm. Come on, so, General Hospital. <laughs> come on, Luke and Laura. I talk about Monica Lewinsky. So there mm-hmm. are all these different points of culture that really did inform my own thinking about myself. And I was represented in my absence in the Mm. absence of not seeing yourself you are truly represented you are told who you can become when you can't see yourself and when you can't see yourself in tv and music um and and books there's there's a part of the book where i talk about all the books that i read in school and and i think all of them had something if there was a black person in that they were enslaved or they were it was jim crow or whatever but when you see, when you don't see yourself, the representation is mm-hmm. you don't belong. Right. You are not human and you are not worthy and you are not valuable. So with everything that's going on right now, um, this book was supposed to come out a while ago and there were lots of hiccups um, because of publishing right. world. My first publisher dropped me when my kid came out. And are yeah. you? Yeah, my first publisher dropped me when my kid oh. came out. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. If y'all want to see how how far my <laughs> eyebrows shot up to heaven, go watch this on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. But let me tell y'all, <laughs> I have to go tell you this. Wow. Yeah. I blame myself in that situation because I knew who they were. They told me who they were. Mm. And I said, okay, because Mm. I didn't think that was my battle. Mm -hmm. So talk about privilege and really effed Mm. up allyship. I mean, Mm. that's some messed up. I, you know, like I'm saying, I'm like, every hill is your hill to die on. Like, it just really is. And I had said in this meeting, because they were really concerned about my relationship to, um, I I had been in a Be the Bridge group with Jen Hatmaker. Mm -hmm. And it was not long after everything that happened with her. And they took her books off the shelf and all that kind of stuff. And they were basically trying to make sure that I wasn't what my theology was around sex and gender. And at the time... I was very forthright. I said, well, I am in the same camp as Jen. But I knew Jen's whole story. So I said, but that's not my hill to die on. My hill to die on is race. Right, 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 right. Which is probably the most 
disgusting sentence I've ever said in my life, not even knowing I was being disgusting mm. until my kid came out and I realized, oh, all the oppressed people hills are my hill to die on. Mm -hmm. it, it is very true. When Audre Lorde said, we ain't, none of us are free until we're all free, I, mm -hmm. nothing could be more true than that. And yes. it was a lesson learned. And uh, the, what I can say for the publishing house, I, they told me exactly who they were. They really did. Mm. And the editor, who I loved, she really came to bat for me. She, she went to them and asked for them to allow me to still publish the book. And But she knew. She said, I'm going to go. But I'm going to tell you, because I told you when we sat down, these are some white very conservative men who run mm -hmm. this company and right. it, it, they did, I respected that they did what they had to do. Do I respect their decision mm -hmm. about other people's bodies? No, no. Yeah. But they said, they told me what was going to mm -hmm. happen if I should step out of line and it happened. And you know what? It's a chain broken, and I'm glad that it's broken. Yeah, man. And, Come on. You know, being That's like yeah, yeah. Rough. But it was it was hard. It was it was because I finished the book. I mm -hmm. I finished it. it. Was my last draft, my fourth draft, and wow. my and it was funny because the editor called and she said, "How do you feel about it now?" And I was just like, "You know what? I think this is a book I really wanted to write." Mm -hmm. And then I said, "And by the way." I do have a hill to die on. Those were my exact words. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, well, I'll, she said, I'll go to the hill with you as far as I can go, but I don't own this hill. This hill is, is owned, this company is owned by somebody else mm -hmm. and they are not going to go with it. And they most certainly didn't. Fun story is that I thought I was going to lose my agent too, but mm -hmm. my agents <laughs> come out so she was leaving too. So she was leaving her agency to start her own agency. And we both went out together like, fine, F them. We'll just go do our own thing. It's like, I'll just do the whole thing myself. Yeah. What you were saying about uh, that, like once you kind of got free of those expectations of a, conser like a more conservative or like my publisher has expectations of me. Um, that you were finally free to write the book that you actually wanted to write, that, that, that to me, I'm like, yeah, it's that's liberation. That's free. like when I have like, there's nothing. It's like I don't need yeah. to gain anything, and there's nothing to lose. Yeah, because they were basically like they would still publish the book as long as I didn't talk about um, LGBT, LG, LBGTQIA um, issues. Mm -hmm. As long as I didn't talk about my child and as long as I didn't use my child's pronouns. <laughs> they literally don't. Don't talk so about your life. Like, In your memoir about how you came alive, please do not talk, <laughs> tell us about your home life or your family. Well, and at any the great time, um, Kevin, at the time, the book was not even called Everybody Come Alive. It was called Black Coffee, White Friends. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, I was, okay. and so... And then when I got with Convergent, and there was a whole bunch of stuff that went down with that, and they, it came to me that they asked if I could rename my book because they felt like it was too much like another person's book. 
Okay. And I was upset by that. But I also was like, I never wanted to call it Black Coffee with White Friends because I was like, this has nothing to do with that. It's so different than my Instagram mm-hmm. feed because in my Instagram feed, I don't really share my life story. I don't mm-hmm. tell. Yeah, that's, that's a place where you're doing a lot more educating. And, right, right. Yeah. And so I didn't feel it was, but they were trying to capitalize on followers. And right. I didn't think it was the right move. So to be able to name it again, I w- I picked that name quite intentionally from one of the um, prose pieces um, about my mother, about my being born around the same time that the first man walked on the moon and mm. Jimi Hendrix. So to be able to pick that name and to love it and yeah. to, to claim it as like kind of like a mantra over my life at that time, because I really was distressed for, I think it was a good six months. I didn't know what was going to happen. I had written this book. I had no, no one was, you know, and my agent was sending it out and I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I, I was, there were days I was, you know, like balled up crying. There were days when I'm, you know, outside working out crying and, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like just drinking and crying. You know, yeah. Like, just really, like, yeah. Yeah. And but I tell you what, if my kid ever wondered if it was okay, that was the moment where they were like, oh, they really do, they really are meaning what they're saying to me, that mm-hmm. there is nothing that they're going to, because my kid knew how much it meant to me to publish a book, and they were really shocked when I said, I'm not going to publish a book with someone where I can't use my kid's pronouns and uh, yeah i can't advocate for them that's crazy and to have my kid just come alive mm-hmm. a little themselves that they could be my kid that they didn't have to be a gendered body in order mm-hmm. for me to love them mm-hmm. you know so that's it yeah, it was it, it was worth it. I'd go through it all again. I would hope I'd get it right the first time. <laughs> Actually. You know, we always hope that we get it right the first time, don't we? Yeah. We yeah, always Absolutely. I think that's Yeah. I mean I look I like there's all these moments where Ugh. I mean I look back through like my feed in, in college and like I Especially, I was in a, I was in a fraternity in college, and so shut the front door. Oh, girl, signify epsilon. Nineteen oh one, baby. Oh my god. Um, one of the oldest, and therefore the one with one of the most problems and the biggest track record of like things that are not okay. Oh um, my gosh. But like it was it was funny enough, like you know, like there is a um, there is a blessing in being the person who like when like when we get to this point in our lives like further down the line and we like share like yeah i used to do a lot of racist shit because i didn't know i was being racist yeah or i used or even for myself i used to do a lot of transphobic shit and homophobic shit Mm -hmm. thinking that i was being loving in the name of jesus or whatever yeah yeah and i think part of the glory and maybe like part of my repentance even is telling that part of my life story too Mm -hmm. and being able to say that is who I was 
and like when I was dead, you know, when I was not connected to love, when right. I was not fully alive. And look what God still has done, if you will. Or look what life has done. Look what love has done. Look at like what I was still able to do. Look how I was able to evolve and change. If that's right. not evidence of love, if that's not evidence of God's goodness, I don't know what is. Right. And to exactly. note that like I didn't have to do it inside of, it was not when I stayed inside the rules of the establishment that I found God. Mm-hmm. It was and the same thing with you. It was when you lost your life, if you will, when you lost the thing that you mm-hmm. found it. Yeah, exactly. It's funny how that shit works, huh? It really does work. <laughs> it really does work that way. It really does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to pull on one of the the things you did in uh, I believe it's in the section of black, and you were talk you're talking. I'm trying to find the quote. Um. Uh, there it is. Um, it's about that translation of that that Song of Solomon where the oh, gosh, yeah. the woman is writing and she says, I am black but beautiful and how it kind of like... Mm-hmm. When I was learning that, I remember sitting and it was... Shanique, Dr. Shaniqua Barnes mm-hmm. was doing like a lesson on that, I think. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, no, it was Will Gaffney. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was Will Gaffney. And she said that the way that she's translated that always is black and beautiful, not black, but yeah. beautiful. And so when I was reading this, this is on chapter, I was on page 114. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, can, is it okay if I just read this little paragraph? Yeah. And then maybe we can talk Go about right it. Ahead. Yeah. It says, for my grandmother and even my mother, my body in the hands of a white man wasn't any different from the com- the concubine's broken and dismembered body in the hands of her enslaver and inevitable into a story born of old age, uh, old age history of violence against black women. They knew that black girls went missing and no one looked for them. They knew black women were raped. No one ever convicted. They feared that I or my sisters would fall for the wrong white boy and get entangled in something that could never be untangled. So the two of them worked in tandem. While my grandmother warned against the charms of white wild, my mother encouraged a dark and beautiful black love. Mm-hmm. And then you go on to talk more about your relationship with, with Simon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the, these things where it's like, there's all these things to be fearful of, all these things to be fearful of. Mm-hmm. And yet your mother still was like, I don't know, like, it feels like she was giving you like the path forward. It's like, here's all the scary things to watch out for, but here's a path forward anyways. I wonder if yeah. like maybe you can unpack that a little bit. And like well, what that felt like. It was a really interesting thing because I, I grew up in two households, my grandmother's child house home and my mother's home. And my mother was, they both had issues with colorism, but on different spectrums. So my grandmother was a very light-skinned woman, um, very Lena Horne-looking, mm-hmm. um, Dorothy Dandridge-looking. And um, she really did not like people my skin tone and darker. Like, she really mm. did not. Um, my mother, on the other hand, really didn't like light-skinned Black women. <laughs> so mm. I and actually um, had an affair with my father because he was dark skinned and she wanted a brown baby like because her her husband was very light skinned so she wanted a baby that she felt looked more like her my mother is mm-hmm. about my was about my complexion she's passed since 
she's been dead since 2010. Mm. Um, but, so I had this, but they both were very concerned about whiteness, us encountering whiteness, even though my grandmother chose to live in an all-white community. My mother decided that it was best for us to all live in this all-white community with my grandparents. So it's so bizarre to me that these two women who had all these issues uh, with color and all this fear of whiteness valued it. And mm. so they were fearful of it, but they valued it. They wanted us to do well and to be able to navigate in, in an all-white school. They wanted us to get the jobs that white people had, but they didn't want us to tangle and dance too much because mm -hmm. they knew stories. Like they knew Reese Taylor's stories. They knew stories of black women who things happened to them at the hands of white men mm -hmm. and nothing was ever done. And so to have the two of them working in tandem, so to speak, my mother really presenting this dark and beautiful love of blackness. And my grandmother having this resistance of that. Like mm. there was part of my grandmother who was very proud to be black and loved her blackness, but not like my mom did. Not, mm -hmm. she didn't, she liked a very assimilated, mm -hmm. you know, um, the 10% blackness, the brown, you know, lighter than a brown paper bag kind of blackness where right. you behaved a certain way. You knew how to assimilate into your culture. You knew how to speak the King's Queen's English. Um, my mother was more so, I more so wanting to live in the fullness of her being without having that white gaze. Um, why she chose that for us, I, I, I wish she could tell me. But, um, but it really was, I think, because she thought it was going to be better for us. Mm -hmm. and, and we weren't asked any questions of if it actually was. My sisters and right. brothers and I are still now talking, or just now since I started since I since I started the book and now that the book is coming out, started talking about the things that we endured in our childhood, um, yeah. the racist things that we endured that we never shared with each other. As, you know, the things that we yeah. we we that happened to us when we went to friends' homes or at school mm -hmm. or on the school bus that we didn't tell one another. So yeah. because we were taught, we were we weren't taught that we were supposed to resist. We we really weren't. Ain't we were taught it. to be safe, not to resist, because to resist. If you resisted, like, right? You could end up. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Woof. And so it's very interesting. Like I, it's never like, I never look at our parents um, or like any of like our, our parents or our grandparents. I never have any like beef with them mm. like around certain things because it's like, when I, when I stand back and I like look, look at it from 10,000 feet, I can see the whole landscape of your life. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and like my father's life, for example, he's a Mexican man. And, um, I have to take out my jacket. It's warm in this house. <laughs> the, it's, it's like, it, that's exactly what it was like. It was the, I'm afraid of this thing, but I also really have to play the game if I want to survive, if I want to, and also if I want to eat, yes. if I want to have a job, if I mm-hmm. want to, mm-hmm. you know, and like, I, so it's like, I get why my mother encouraged us to not lean so heavily into our Garcia name and like mm-hmm. to not, or like my dad, like never speaking Spanish in the house. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like, I never knew who I was and like, or I think it was the scariest part or the saddest part was because my dad like effectively erased himself. It's just like, I taught, I learned how to erase myself too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, when you were starting, you know, when you were becoming a mom and like raising a child, like what was, you know, what became different for you? What did you like, notice in yourself as you were beginning to to mother was it still like some of the similar tendencies or it was just like nah I, I know how to resist this and I know how to teach or like love better man I wish I could say that I knew how to resist it I I didn't when when I had Max I think I my mom's my relationship with my mom being separated from her 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 if essentially abandoning us to our grandparents um, I just thought my presence alone was a win mm, because nice. I, mm. I didn't have that from my own mother. So I thought I was winning just by doing things like reading books to them at night, um, being very concerned about them not feeling poor in the childhood or less than in, 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 in their childhood and in, in their classrooms. Um, I still believed that white institutions had something better than Mm. a black institution did because that had been so ingrained in me. And not just in me, I think just in the culture in in general. Um, I listened to this interview with Nicole um, Hannah-Jones who wrote the 1619 Project. And before she wrote the 1619 Project, she was heavily invested in the desegregation of schools because our schools are our public schools are still very segregated, mm-hmm. extremely segregated, yes. actually more segregated than some of them were before um, Brown versus the Board of Education. So she was on a show with Torre, um, the Torre show, and mm-hmm. he had asked about her own child's education. And Nicole Hannah Jones was like, my kid goes to the public school in my neighborhood and his kids he was an african-american man he was talking about how his kids go to a a private school because he wants his kids to you know eventually be able to go to ivy league schools and to have the best you know all the Mm -hmm. reasons that we say that we're picking these private schools over the public schools and he asked Nicole Hannah-Jones, <laughs> basically he asked her a question about um, how, how do we as black parents 
hope for our kids to have access to this status, um, especially if we can't afford the private schools or if we choose not to put them in private schools. And Nicole and Jones said, do you really want me to answer the question? And I was like, I don't even know if I want oh. you to answer the question. Oh. And I'm not even Wait, if anybody, If anybody asks, do you really want me to answer, <laughs> answer the question? You really got to oh be sure that gosh. there's a yes in your spirit about that. Right? It, you really do. And so she said, I don't want my kid. She said, if my kid goes to Harvard, then I would feel like I did something wrong. Mm. And it was such a bold statement to just say, and then she said, and how is my kid still not privileged? Yes, my kid goes to the same school that the black single mom in the neighborhood goes to. And I elevate that school with my presence there. Right? Why should mm. why should I have something different? We're paying the same, we're paying taxes to the same place. Why should I why should I, my kid be special? And she said, but really if we think about it, she's like, my kid's home with a tutor now. Mm-hmm. And my kid ha- has extracurricular programs that I can afford them. And mm-hmm. my kid has a a mom who's, you know, a near times columnist, you know? So how is my kid not privileged? Still more privileged. So I wish I would have had that mentality um, because the diversity that Max needed wasn't there when I put them into a private school. It wasn't there. And they desperately needed it as a queer kid. As a black kid, as a kid who didn't come from the enormous wealth that many of the students, most of the students came from, um, as a kid that didn't have like a legacy of wealth, because, you know, those schools tend to have, you know, grandma had money and Mm -hmm. great, great grandfather had money and everybody had money and the money and the money and the money. Right. So... I really wished I would have done better and not, but it's that fear. It's that fear. We were told Mm -hmm. to fear diversity, fear the diversity of socioeconomic um, ability in a school. Like if they're poor kids in that school, oh, they must be, you know, Mm -hmm. They're all going to be gangbangers, you know, or if they're um, Latinx kids and black kids in that school, oh, my kid's going to be, my white kid's going to be endangered. Um, The fact that we've done this to ourselves, we we have Mm -hmm. said that diversity is not as valuable as the homogenous white institution. And I really wish that I, I had sooner taken my kid out of that Christian school. Uh, and especially as Christians, if you're Christian, like you feel like mm. the safety that you're trying to create, which is so funny to me because nobody's safe in the Bible. Ain't nobody safe in the Bible. Like, no, never know, once. Safety is not he, like... He even said it right there. He said, son of man ain't got no place for his head. <laughs> I know. But for some reason... We strive so hard 
to keep our kids safe. And then we tell these kids that we have sheltered. They ain't met nobody different to mm. go out into the world and, and defend make an the faith. And make it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's the oxymoron of it. You don't have to know anything about these people groups. You just go. You just and, gotta love Jesus. Yes. All you need. I mean, that's I mean that's what got me out on the missionary field. That's what yeah. they said so many. Yeah. Truthfully, crazy. and when I say this, like well-meaning, well-intentioned, truly yes. faithful individuals yeah. who want to, who like I'm. Here's the deal. I, I most of the people who I encountered when I was a short-term missionary, mm-hmm. um, and by like I was, I was like a hybrid short-term, long-term because I was going to eleven countries in eleven months, so it was different. Mm-hmm. But every single person on my squad wanted to be there because they felt, quote unquote, like there was a call of God on their life to go serve in this particular way. I don't think anybody just randomly gives up a year of their life to go do this thing. Right. Like right, something right. like that. Mm-hmm. And the only, because we are sheltered, that we think yeah. the only way we can make an impact is if we tell people about this person who right. died 2,000 years ago and maybe rose from the dead. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. We got no proof. But if you put your faith in them, long story short, it's like there are all these earnest people out there who are trying to trying to do the right thing. And we are often the people who get burnt the most when we mm-hmm. can't, when we finally meet Jesus, if you will, when we finally get clarity about who God loves, yeah, we don't fit. And all of a sudden we're the problem. We're not fit. We're, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wish if I could go back and tell my younger, you know, eight years, eight, nine years ago, Kevin, it's like, I know you want to fit so badly. Yeah. There's a reason that you don't. And it's because you don't fit here in this particular place. But that doesn't mean that you do not fit into the vast tapestry of this world. So why are you trying to be apart from it? You fit into this world quite nicely. You're trying to keep yourself separate. You're trying to file down your edges so you can be a nice little whatever for them yeah yeah it's it's so true so it and and i understand it to an extent why my why my parents grandparents and my and my mom and my dad for his part performed in the way that they performed they had Mm -hmm. really come out of a situation like to see where they came from out coming out of Jim Crow, the right. Jim Crow era, seeing what happened, the white backlash to all of the civil rights gains. So that's the thing that's really important to my story is that, yes, I was born in 1969. There have been all these civil rights gains. But at the time that I was born, I was born during the backlash. I was mm. born um a year after Dr. King was assassinated. I was born after all these people have been killed mm-hmm. for their their fight for equality, equity, um, and justice. And I think my parents thought, well, damn, um, I'm just going to keep my kids safe. And so, mm-hmm. and... On the heels of that, the busing situation, which was most of the 70s, like we were one of the, Cleveland was one of the 
last to fully integrate and to fully start using busing. So there was all this stuff that was happening in the culture that was saying otherwise to the gains that had happened at the Capitol with, you know, mm. the Voting Rights and the Civil Rights Act and Brown versus the Board of Education, all of that, all those things that happened that were gains. There was white backlash that was really aggressive and that people ended up dead. And I think in today's time, it's a truly telling story um, because we, we are still in that white backlash that yes. is that comes so aggressively and the people leading it is the church. And so mm-hmm. my feeling is that while they can't tell me it's not okay to say, to call me the N word or to say that you want to be, you want to be segregated or segregation, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation. Mm -hmm. You can't say that, but what you can say is don't say gay. Right. And what you can say, and in doing that. There's no CRT. Yeah. You can say no CRT. It's just a different dog whistle is all that it is. You can say woke. You call somebody, (laughs) talk about wokeism. Yeah. But only in the negative. Right. So it's, 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 so I wish that I had, I'll tell a quick story just to tell you how, how um, it went for us. There was this time, it may even be in the book, but there's this time when Max was really little and we were at the library and I saw this bust of Lincoln. And I said, oh, look, look, baby, here's the man who, who set all the slaves free, set the black people free. And Max said, now my history was the only the history I knew at that time, mm-hmm. but let's not even talk about how messed up that history is because that's not right. what happened. But mm-hmm. Max said, what black people? And I said, us, you and me, black people. And Max looked at me and went, I'm not black, I'm brown. And this kid was maybe five. Mm -hmm. I remember going home thinking, oh my gosh, my mother just rolled over in her grave. I don't even know how I didn't know that my kid didn't know that they were black. Like it was, it was, it was a moment where I really was just like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if I'm preparing them, you know? I, I don't know if, and we were in a pretty diverse school at that time. We were in Chicago. So I don't know if I was really preparing them for what their skin color meant and mm-hmm. to others in the world. They were being very sheltered because, A, they're freaking adorable. And two, um, I lived in a community that was that while there wasn't a huge number of white people, it was of black people. There were black people, there were queer people, there were Mm -hmm. Asian people, there were, you know, like immigrants and, you know, like there was this huge mix of people of culture. And because of that, I thought I was doing something, 
because I, I thought that you could just kind of like a church color code the, the congregation, but mm -hmm. not change the board of the board of directors. And basically the board of directors from my household was still a very white normative story. Mm. And right. I hadn't yet flipped and learned history and blackness and identity in a way that I could pass down to Max. Luckily, um, we were able to go through that together um, during their high school years. Mm. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm really You, um, me. <laughs> really. Um, we're coming up on time, so I don't want to keep you yeah. in case you got okay. stuff going on. So I want to wrap up with um, the same five questions I did last time. I don't know if you remember. It's just just one thing. Um, okay. So Marcy Alice Walker, author of Everybody Come Alive, in stores in May 2024. Um, uh, what's one thing that you like about yourself? Oh, my blackness. <laughs> hey, yeah. I really... Um, my husband will tell you, I really enjoy being black. <laughs> like, <laughs> I enjoy it to the 100th power because I yes. love to see our resistance, our rise, our joy. I love our joyful resistance. I love that after a dang pandemic um, and George Floyd and everyone's waiting to hear from Beyonce, she came out with a freaking disco house music, mm -hmm. queer album. I love that about us. And I yes. love that I get to be a part of that story. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. What's one thing you're super duper proud of or just regular proud of? Oh, my kid. And mm. it's it's a super duper duper super duper duper to watch Unbelievably. them walk. I, to have a, a queer kid walk in this world and stand, love who they love, um, stand on their identity, right? Recently, they dropped the class because the the professor said that they weren't sure if they would remember to use their pronouns. And Max was like, <laughs> then like, bye. And Max reported them and was like, deuces. And I was never so proud of that kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing that pisses you off or is like a pet peeve? It can be petty or it can be like real deep. It's whatever you want. Dang. It's like, um, a, like only a big one. Like another big one. <laughs> there's so many, Kevin. <laughs> I, I am annoyed these days. <laughs> Who among us? Um, I, I'm really angry at the church. I still am. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am angry, and I'm angry that they have made so many people frightened that they no longer listen to themselves. I'm, I'm angry that they've taken away people's own intuition using scriptures that are bogus so that mm -hmm. people won't listen to their hearts. I'm angry about that on the daily, on the hourly. You and me both. Yeah. Mm. We get, that's a whole other podcast. I will not. <laughs> okay. What's one thing that you are committed to? Um, 
I'm committed to telling stories and listening to stories and, and amplifying stories. I am committed to that. Um, Mm. 10,000%. I spend a lot of my time just endorsing books because it means that much to me when someone says, Hey, will you endorse this? Or will you read this? Or, I mean, I'm, I'm rooting for all the unheard voices (laughs) for Mm -hmm. every single one of them. And I will always be committed to that. It's the one thing that I know that I will always be able to do is to, to root for somebody. I can't necessarily guarantee that I'll always be able to work out or do this or to do that or even to write, but I will always be able to listen to someone's story and say, preach, tell the truth. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm. What is one thing you would like to do before you die? That's a good one. Oh. There's so many things I'd like to do before I die, but what's like the what's like the next one you're gonna get done then? Um I golly. Um I really want to buy my sisters. I don't own my home, but my sisters are all ten years older than me, so I have a sister who's 63 and and, and on down. So 63, 62. And then my other sister may have just turned 60. I'm not sure. But they've worked their whole lives in service jobs, serving people, hard, hard workers, um, hard to make a buck, hard to keep a buck kind of people. And I would love to buy them a home so that they don't have to worry about that in their older mm. age. That's like a dream, like the thing I dream about most doing before yeah. I die, knowing that I took care of my sisters, who yeah. took care of my parents, who never get thanks. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're just women just trying to live and exist in this world with yeah. very little privilege. Well, I pray that this book is so fucking successful that you can buy both your house and theirs. Aw, from your Let's mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Listen, we're bringing it, we're, we're calling in the abundance. We're saying angles, make your rounds. And we're going to tell everybody who's listening to this podcast to go pre-order the book. If you haven't pre-ordered it yet, what are you doing? Go follow Marcy on all the internets at Black Coffee with White Friends. Um, subscribe to her newsletter. Um, is there anything else you want to promote anything that you are pushing besides the book right now um just a book and I'll, i will be having a live event <gasps> live in person event in chicago june 1st so um, i'll be there Listen, my I'm coming. Favorite let's go this queer bookstore so i'm very very excited about that so yes um, um i'm also um this is my formal invitation to you as I make my tour rounds for Bad Theology Kills, the belated yeah. book tour, um, come on, come on and hang out. Let's do a live podcast. That'll be fun. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Let's yeah. Do it. Yeah. Where are you again? Atlanta, Georgia. Oh yeah, I haven't been to Atlanta, and you know those are my housewives, so I need to go there so Listen, that I can go through. to the Candy's um, OLG restaurant and get me some of that cooking and you know all of it. 
That was my conversation with the fabulous Marcy Alvis Walker. And as you heard, the book is coming out in May. So go pre-order it right now, wherever your fine books are sold. Try to buy local if you can, because girl, we know the empire's out here. Um, if you want to follow Marcy, you can follow her across social media. Her handle is Black Coffee with White Friends. And also check out BlackCoffeeWithWhiteFriends.com for more about her work. Thank you, Marcy. This was such a fun time. I am so thrilled for you. If you like the show and you want to show your support, please do one of two things or both things. Do both things, actually. One, leave us a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because it does help. Regardless of what you think, it does help. People read the reviews. I read the reviews. And some of them are really wonderful and heartwarming. So go write something nice for me. Leave me five stars and then share this podcast with someone you know needs to hear it. Okay? Very, very simple. Another way that you can support me is you can go buy my book. It's called Bad Theology Kills. It's available at badtheologykills.com. It's also available on Amazon worldwide. Another thing you can do is go check out my merch store. We've got all sorts of cute things, including Bad Theology Kills t-shirts, stuff that says like deconstruction is sexy. Um, we got patches, we got hats. Like it's really like, oh, my favorite one is the, the Sinfluencer crew neck sweater which i'm going to be putting on um, some tank tops over the summer so just saying there's some really easy tangible ways that you can support me support the show um all of that stuff lives at thekevingarcia.com be on the lookout for information regarding the summer spiritual uh spiritual recovery cohort it's going to be a whole different experience than what it's been before and i'm i want a lot of people to be a part of it so start getting excited my love um i think that about does it If you are taking care of yourself out there, if you're not taking care of yourself out there, wherever you are at on your journey, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that you're not alone and there's space for you here at this crowded table. Okay. So till next week, take your meds, call your person, shake your ass a little bit, drink some water, call your therapist, eat something delicious and I'll see you next week. Okay. I love you. You're a wonderful person. Bye.